First, I want to introduce her this way. Claudia Emerson received her MFA in Creative Writing from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro in 1991. And her career since then has been a series of stellar accomplishments. She has published poems in numerous prestigious literary magazines, including Poetry, Shenandoah, The Southern Review, and Plowshares, to name just a few. And her poetry has been featured more than once, including this very morning, on the internet site Poetry Daily. She has garnered an impressive array of awards, including the Library of Congress's 2005 Witter Binner Fellowship, for which she was handpicked by Poet Laureate Ted Kuzan, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and two nominations for the Pulitzer Prize from LSU Press, the press whose Southern Messenger series has published all three of Professor Emerson's books, Pharaoh Pharaoh in 1997, Pinion, and Elegy in 2002, and Late Wife, the volume we gather to celebrate today. The weakness of this introduction to me is that it misses the essence of Claudia's relationship to poetry, which is, for her, less a career than a way of life. It's not just that a student can walk by her office on any given afternoon and find her obsessively reworking syllables and lines. It's not just that I can come by with a volume of Wilfred Owen and always find her ready for a spirited 30-minute discussion of whether this half-line is best scanned as two spondies or two IMs and whether or not the Pyrrhic even exists. <laughs> There's no question but that Claudia is a master of her craft. But it's also that Claudia is steeped to her very fibers in, fundamentally encounters the world through language and metaphor. The richness of words that is comprised of their sounds, and their etymologies and their most obscure resonances not only delights but indeed sustains her. In everyday life, she recognizes and explores the radical correspondences, to borrow a phrase from a more canonical Emerson, that are the <laughs> essence of metaphor. In late life, more than any other volume, Claudia entwines her life and her art explicitly. The foray into the autobiographical can be dangerous, especially, I would argue, for a woman poet when the study of women's art has so often been re reduced to mere biographical chartings. As one critic says, literary scholars tend to see life as an embarrassment to art and lament biographical hocus-pocus that has interfered with lucid contemplation of the poetry. But as this critic contends in discussing Sylvia Plath, I would like to suggest that her life was not only fuel for her work, it was part of that work. We might say the same of Claudia Emerson. Please join me in welcoming her. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mara. I wanted to say before I started reading from the book, just to remind uh, students who are still here who were working with me when I was still writing this book, but I wrote the book in three falls and one spring, trying to keep pace with English 304A in the fall. So I think I did all right in the big scheme of things. Um, this book is, is a highly personal one for me and very different from my other books for that reason, although when I look back on those books now, I can see myself hiding all over them. Um, but as I was thinking about reading for the hometown crowd, and, and by the way, thank you for coming out. It, it, I thought, oh my gosh, writing all this personal stuff seemed like a really good idea at the time. <laughs> now, I, now I have to read it out loud in front of people who, who know me. Um, 
I'll try to give you a sampling from the three sections in the book and talk to you about what the sections are like. Um, and this first section, I call them divorce epistles. They are all in the first person, me as well as I know myself, addressing my first husband to whom I was married for 19 years. We lived in the country mostly in Southside, Virginia, in a series of farmhouses that we didn't own but rented. Um, so I think that tells you uh, all you need to know about these. This one is called Aftermath. We all know what aftermath means, but talking about the etymology thing, I also did some work with that word, and it means a second cutting of a field as well. So, aftermath. I think by now it is time for the second cutting. I imagine the field, the one above the last house we rented, has lain in convalescence long enough. The hawk has taken back the air above new grass, and the doe again can hide her young. I can tell you now I crossed that field, weeks before the first pass of the blade, through grass and briars, fog, the night itself to my thighs, my skirt pulled up that high. I came to what had been our house and stood outside. I saw her in it. She reminded me of me, with her hair black and long as mine had been, as she moved in and then away from the sharp frame the window made of the darkness. I confess that last house was the coldest I kept. In it, I became formless as fog crossing the walls, formless as your breath as it rose from your mouth to disappear in the air above you. You see, aftermath is easier, opening again the wound along its numb scar. It is the sentence spoken the second time, truer, perhaps, with the blunt edge of a practiced tongue. When I looked back on a long marriage, where I hadn't been particularly happy, but I had said I'd do it, so I was hanging in there. <laughs> when I looked back on it after it was all said and done, and uh, I began to see the metaphors everywhere that sort of sh showed the dissolving of it. So any small thing that happened, I would sort of resurrect it and say, okay, where's the metaphoric door going to open into the marriage? In this one, my ex-husband, Jesse, who was not the devil, by the way, um, brought home a little waxwing bird. Um, if you know waxwings, uh, they're actually social little creatures. And we kept it in this farmhouse and fed it, and it flew around and liked us very well. After we let it go, it didn't leave very readily. So I did some reading about the waxwings, and it turns out they like each other fairly well. Um, they love to hang out together and give each other berries, and they're very, very social. So I worried about the little bird, that we had raised it in the house with us, and now it didn't know how to find the other waxwings. So I look back on that incident, and I think you'll hear the metaphor opening uh, when I think about why did we feed a long marriage if it wasn't going to come to any more than this. Waxwing. The cedar waxwing had to have fallen from some nest you couldn't see, so you brought it into the house to save it. We fed it crickets, sold boxed for bass bait, kept it in the cage we made of the kitchen, where the bird sat on the sideboard for days, its mouth an insatiable, urgent flower, before finding flight, the stalled blade of the ceiling fan, other rooms. For weeks we lived with the sound of wings. I grew accustomed to the billing purr, 
the feel of an electric, furious lightness clinging to my shoulder, what it should have feared. The wax wing accepted us as given, and with us our seized, repressive sky, glassed light, narrow stairway. So when we let it go, when it refused the atavistic sky, remained instead for one full month in the hickory tree that loomed over the house, I asked you why we'd fed it. What had we saved for a world so alien? The waxwing must have believed it had died in those rooms where for a while we went on living. We heated always with wood uh, in the country houses. Um, I'm thrilled with my little house on the corner of Marie and Little Page with unfortunately now a natural gas furnace, but I do have a furnace, which I was happy with when I moved to Fredericksburg. But the, the closed down stove, if you've ever heated with wood, you close it down so it'll burn slowly all night. Well, that builds up creosote and catch the, the, the chimney on fire. And so I saw that very much as a metaphor uh, for myself and my own um, tamped down emotional state. Chimney fire. I learned to dread winter early before fall showed any real sign of itself, the world still filled with locusts, crickets, bees in the bone set, ashen moths quickening the dusk. Then around the time the hickory nuts began to fall, the tree far larger than the house and fertile with sharp husks that struck and struck again, startling the tin roof and me beneath it, I began to dread as well the silence I knew would come yoked to the cold. By then, you'd cut and stacked the wood, cleaned out the stove. In late afternoons, we scoured the undergrowth for fat wood, skeletal sap for lighting the fire you rarely let go out. Every night, you'd close the stove down tight before we went upstairs, and the meager heat from that slow burn might keep the pipes from freezing, but it wouldn't reach the bedroom where we slept beneath layers leaden as water that would not float me, dense as mud beneath that water. In the morning, all our breathing had turned to ice, blooming like white lichen on the insides of the window panes. One night, one winter nearing spring, the fire would not be kept. The chimney caught it, and we watched, heard it pour up into the tree the fire would have consumed with the house if it had burned much longer. But slowly, the flames turned back, receded to the familiar rise of smoke, banked coals, my eyes, my mouth filled with ashes. Um, yeah, so these poems basically will chronicle several of the seasons of the last year I was married to Jesse. And this one, he liked to pitch horseshoes. I don't know if you like to do that. Um, but he would stay out there by himself till after dark, uh, throwing the horseshoes. So again, when I, after it was all said and done, I looked back on that and I thought, hmm, yeah, <laughs> something, was, something was up with that. Um, I did a lot of research on horseshoes actually writing this, and none of it ended up in the poem. I always tell my students, research is important, but sometimes it doesn't figure in. So I'll, I'll give you this one, Pitching Horseshoes. Some of your buddies might come around for a couple of beers and a game, but most evenings you pitched horseshoes alone. I washed up the dishes 
or watered the garden to the thudding sound of the horseshoe in the pit or the practiced ring of metal against metal after the silent arc end over end. That last summer, you played a seamless, unscored game against yourself, or night falling, or coming in the house. You were good at it. From the porch, I watched you become shadowless, then featureless, until I knew you couldn't see either, and still the dusk rang out, your aim that easy. Between the iron stakes, you had driven into the hard earth yourself. You paced back and forth as if there were a decision to make, and you were the one to make it. There's one more with a lot of cold in it. I noticed lots of these poems came out in winter time. Um, we were both really sick with a terrible cold the last Christmas we were together, so I ended up writing one about that. I was not very good with the axe, which is what this, he was too sick to cut the firewood, and that was not my favorite thing, so that kind of um, is behind this one. The last Christmas. We were both sick. I had lost my voice. You were feverish, coughing. I had to split the kindling myself. We'd been without power for two days, the spindling cedar darkening the room. The lines, still sleeved in ice, sagged all afternoon above the arc of the axe. The lift and fall of the edge, you made sure it kept. It was late when I watched the blade graze wood and keep falling toward me. I felt it brush my pants leg close as a cat, harmless. I quit then, certain I had let it fall where it wanted, not into seasoned wood, but into me. Surely the ice would never melt, the pines would not straighten, I'd never speak. Later, when I carried up your supper on a tray, you woke, pale, glazed from the fever breaking, and told me you'd worried when the sound of splintering stopped. You were sure you had gotten up from your sickbed to look out that very window. You said my mouth was open, but I was too far away and you could not hear me. I was small, mute beneath the window frame, your breath forming, freezing on the panes until you could not see me and there was nothing you could do. Um, I, I think this book in many ways is about disappearing from a life in a, in a probably sort of an odd way in that Jesse and I didn't have any children, we didn't own a home. Uh, when it all fell apart, I never, I never went back. I never went back to the house. He just sent me my things in boxes. So this poem is about that. Possessions. I sent you a list of what I wanted and you boxed it up carelessly as though for the backs of strangers or the fire, the way you might have handled a dead woman's possessions when you could no longer bear to touch them, the clothes still fragrant, worn, still that reminiscent of the body. Or perhaps your lover packed the many boxes herself, released from secret into fury, that sick of the scent of me in the bed, that wary of her face caught in my mirror, a thing I said then I didn't want, where I would not see myself again. Um, I realized it, that all this divorce fell apart my first year at Mary Washington, and I realized um, it was going to be all right. I had landed in a pretty nice community, um, and uh, people were uh, kind to me. And um, 
even to the point of uh, fixing me up with one of their colleagues after my divorce. So this one, <laughs> this one um, goes out to Professor Harding back here, <laughs> who uh, <laughs> fixed me up with a Spanish professor at Georgetown. Uh, it, did, it didn't go so well, but the poem is featured on Poetry Daily today. Um, so this is one my mother says, don't you read that poem out to people. But, um, yeah, it still, it still addresses my first husband, but, um, you know, he and I were both from Southside. I didn't really know much about the world outside that place, so to, to um, yeah, go out on a date like this was pretty exciting for me. So this one is called The Spanish Lover. <laughs> <laughs> there were warnings. He had at 40 never married. He was too close to his mother, calling her by her given name, Manuela. Ah, Manuela, like a lover. Even her face had bled, even the walls giving birth to him. She still had saved all of his baby teeth, except the one he'd yet to lose, a small eye tooth embedded, stubborn in the gum. I would eat an artichoke down to its heart, then feed the heart to him. It was enough that he was not you, and utterly foreign, related to no one. So it was not love. So it ended badly, but to some relief. I was again alone in my bed, but not invisible as I had been to you. And I'd learned that when I drank sherry, I was drinking a chalk-white landscape, a distant, poor soil, that such vines have to suffer, and that champagne can be kept effervescent by putting a knife in the open mouth of the bottle. Which I later learned was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. um, the the, this section ends, this is the last epistle, divorce epistle, um, because I did keep the mirror. Remember that I said I was going to keep the mirror that he made for me? But I did keep it, and I actually didn't see it for a while, and then it reappeared to me uh, just in looking at it one day. So this one seemed like a nice uh, one to close the section on. Uh, Jesse was a, a good woodworker, and he knew a lot about uh, woods and finishes, things like that. Frame. Most of the things you made for me, armless, rocker, blanket, chest, lap desk, I gave away to friends who could use them and not be reminded of the hours lost there, the tedious finishes. But I did keep the mirror, perhaps because like all mirrors, most of these years it has been invisible, part of the wall, or defined by reflection, safe, because reflection, after all, does change. I hung it here in the front dark hallway of this house you will never see, so that it might magnify the meager light and become a lesser backward window. No one pauses long before it. This morning, though, as I put on my coat, straightened my hair, I saw outside my face its frame you made for me, admiring for the first time the way the cherry you cut and planed yourself had darkened, just as you said it would. The second section of this book um, is far less narrative. It doesn't even hang on to different points of a narrative. I began, in thinking about putting the book together, to look at uh, just a random sort of sequence, uh, metaphors of, as I say here, convalescence, reconstruction, recovery, they don't fit very neatly, but I was uh, on the lookout for those. Um, this section is shorter than the rest of the book. 
One is called House Sitting, I'd like to read. Um, I had an apartment in Fredericksburg, but I, I didn't really consider Fredericksburg home. And so I borrowed a house in my hometown where I had lived all those years uh, the first summer I was by myself. And I thought, well, I'll just, you know, um, mire myself down in depressing things, right, to be in a big old empty house. I'll just sit there and, and be miserable. And I remember walking into that house. It was a storming night and this empty, empty house. And it was wonderful. There was nothing in there. It was great. So I had a wonderful time. And it's, the poem says, I slept in a Murphy bed that pulled down in the day and then you put it up during, you know, at night and then you put it up during the day. It's called House Sitting. The first summer I was alone, I lived in a borrowed house in our hometown. I'd not yet broken the habit of resorting to that place, though my belongings were already in another city, and I knew I'd be gone by fall. I had no phone. I would receive no letters, the temporality that blunt. A house in transition, tall ceilings were made taller, grander by its emptiness. I slept in a bed that during the day closed into the wall. The other rooms were bare, though the chandelier still hung low over the place where a table would go, and the mirror behind it rose from floor to ceiling. I was relieved there was nothing there to get used to. Evenings, I lit candles as though for guests, and danced with my own vanishing as the prisms moved in the draft my body made of the stillness. I was as I said, on the lookout for any story that would make me think uh, new possibilities would happen. So this one is for my father. I'd like to read it for him. He's 91 um, and uh, is doing pretty well down in Southside. He told the story um, that's pretty much straight ahead the way it is uh, in the poem, so I'll just go ahead and read it. Somebody at home asked me if the story was true, and I said, well, of, of course it is. And it occurred to me later he could have made the whole thing up and <laughs> just being nice to me and wanted to tell me something. So um, it's called Second Bearing. The year is 1919, when the story happens. I have asked him to tell it, how he heard the curing barn took hours to burn, the logs thick, accustomed to heat, how even when it was clear all was lost, the barn and the tobacco fields within it, they threw water instead on the nearby peach tree, intent on saving something, sure though the heat had killed it, the bark charred black. But in late fall, the tree broke into bloom, perhaps having misunderstood the fire to be some brief backward winter. Blossoms whitened, opened, peaches appeared against the season, an answer, an argument, word carried. People claimed the fruit was sweeter for being out of time, and they rode miles to see it. He remembers my grandfather saying his mouth full, this is a sign, and the one my father was given to eat, the down the same, soft as any other, inside the color of cream, juice clear as water, but wait, wait. He holds his cupped hand up as though for me to see again there is no seed, no pit to come to, that it is infertile and endless somehow. Two more from this section, and then I'll go to the sonnets. Um, I have to read this one because it um, features the Civil War and Fredericksburg and all that stuff. Um, 
I actually own this book still. It's called Orthopedic Injuries of the Civil War, um, <laughs> which is a fascinating book, by the way. And I was interested in how some of the reconstruction of the body, they learned a lot about prosthetic limbs after that war. And some of the reconstructions were um, purely for looks, looks like a hand, right? And others were very functional. And those two things didn't seem to go together. So I became really fascinated personally with um, ideas of how we rebuild. And also, the, these are all photographs of these men. And, and um, their faces are just straight into the, to the camera. It's called Atlas. In the museum gift shop at the foot of Marie's Heights, a lone slim volume entitled Orthopedic Injuries of the Civil War lay remaindered at half price, a book many had handled without wanting to own. I could not resist either, looking inside, compelled by two photographs, portraits on the cover of the same formal young man. In one image, both of his legs are missing. In the other, he wears prosthetic limbs bared for the camera. In image after image, the book catalogs particular survivals organized by the anatomic regions of loss, extremities, upper and lower, thigh, shoulder. Some men are halved, and in the next photograph, risen from ether or chloroform, from opium and whiskey, to wear inventions of wood, leather, metal. They had survived the bullet, the surgeon's knife, and now this first rough reconstruction of the body to look past the aperture and into the photographer wearing the century's dark call then into me. I bought the book, but not for their unique disfigurements. It was their shared expression I wanted, resolve so sharply formed I cannot believe they ever met another death. The one that closes this section is an, an odd one, I suppose, in some ways. Um, I'll send this one out to Ben Dombrowski, who's had a migraine headache today. Um, it's called Migraine, Aura, and Aftermath. If you know a little bit about, a bit about classic migraine, you literally lose your sight and you um, believe it for a minute. You think you've gone partly blind. And, but the convalescence from migraine is wonderful. And so um, I ended this section on uh, that notion of convalescence. Migraine, aura, and aftermath. First part of the world disappears. Something is missing from everything. The cat's eye, ear, the left side of its face, two fingers from my right hand, the words from the end of a sentence. The absence is at first more absolute than whatever darkness I imagine the blind perceive. Perfect, without color or motion, nothing replaces what is gone. The senses do not contradict. My arm goes numb, my leg. Though I have felt the cold air of this disappearance before, each time the aura deceives me to believe reality itself has failed. I fear this more than what it warns because I cannot remember I will survive it. The other half of me will shine all night, defined by the eclipse. Then... In the relieved wake of the day that follows it, I will find my hand, count my fingers, and beginning to see again, will recognize myself restored to the evening of a righted room. If there's one thing this life has taught me so far and, and the experience of living here and, and uh, writing this book, it's to be open to sur surprise. Um, I ended up uh, being fine 
um, here in Fredericksburg, but I met uh, Kent and fell in love in middle age. So um, everything was great, except I had a great sadness involved in it as well because his first wife, whom he had loved dearly, had died from lung cancer. And so um, there was something that kept haunting me about being happy, but only because someone had disappeared before me. So I felt I was reappearing in, in this other existence. So I was compelled to write a sequence of letters to, to him. So these are all letters uh, to Kent about, um, in, in part, his, his wife who died. Um, I was very aware of the risk in, in doing this, and they were hard to write in a way, but I think um, they helped me and, and helped him. He said it helped him to, to turn what had been a cataclysm for him and for her into something that might have some lasting value. So I chose sonnets, uh, the sonnet form or variations on it for these, and I'll read you some of these. Artifact. For three years you lived in your house, just as it was before she died. Your wedding portrait on the mantel, her clothes hanging in the closet, her hair still in the brush. You have told me you gave it all away then, sold the house, keeping only the confirmation cross she wore, her name in cursive chased on the gold underside, your ring in the same box, those photographs you still avoid, and the quilt you spread on your borrowed bed, small things. Months after we met, you told me she had made it. After we had slept already beneath its loft and thinning raveled pattern, as though beneath her shadow, moving with us, that dark, that soft. Um, we love to ride our bicycles on the canal path. If you've ever been down there, and the path goes below the hospital. And it took a long time for Kent to tell me that the place we love to go and feed the turtles, he and Lynn had been able to see from her hospital room uh, the fall that she was ill. So there would be a lot of things like that where something would, would come up. And, and uh, it took me a long time to write these, but it would kind of go in my mind as something that had, was going to be dealt with. So this one's called the hospital, and it's seen from the canal path. The hospital rises, a mute castle. Walls of impenetrable glass mirror the pall of cloud and sky, give up nothing of disease or the narratives of disease. We can see it high above us from the canal path, these wetlands where we come to feed the turtles, where the red-winged blackbirds purr and call, swelling their coverts. You were with your wife up there that last fall. You have told me how you looked down on the narrow pier I thought we had discovered, how even in her terror she could still see to notice with pleasure the bronze of the water and these alders before they lost to it the fat of their leaves. Um, some things he wouldn't see anymore, but I would find them and they would have belonged to her or would bring something up. And those would be very much like finding, I don't know, something quite her to me. And the most powerful thing I found in a box was her calendar of, of the last year of her life. And a couple things occurred to me, again, noticing things that, that Kent had forgotten about really, is how optimistic calendars are. We get our calendars and we write everything in for the whole year. If you're anal the way I am, <laughs> you know, love to think about spondies and periods. And, you know, I organize everything. And, and his first wife was very much like that, too. And so her calendar was very, very filled. But I think the, the, the poem tells um, 
what happened when she got uh, sick. Daybook. This is the season of her dying, and you have kept it, I find, underneath the stairs in a box filled with photographs, her daybook of that last year, the calendar, a narrative she did not intend to write. In the grid of days, I see her habit had been to record in pencil what might be erased, moved, saving the indelible black for what could not change, your birthday, hers, your anniversary. And in that same decisive hand, the disease began to eclipse this order, but she erased nothing. Now from beneath the days the hospital claimed, her first latent words emerge, faint but certain as images of ribs cradling milky lungs, the flesh forgotten as water you can see through to the bottom. The Cough You can't recall when it first appeared in her, but it must have been in late summer, around the time the locusts came and muted crickets, bird song, the wind. And in the same way you would not have perceived a tightening in the trees before the onslaught of that sound, you noticed nothing before it. Fatigue, perhaps, intolerance for the heat. She kept saying then that it would pass with the season, insisted, even as it consumed her, grew bolder, not sleeping even when she slept. It would outlive the locusts, but by days few enough to count. The translucent forms still left clinging to the world they had overset, each one a perfect mold of the body that refused it. Um, these became less, I don't know, emotionally charged as the falls went by when the season would go, come round another year. I wrote this one because Kent is a wonderful musician and he collects acoustic instruments. And he began the collection after Lynn died as, uh, to expand a hobby. Music was a, a good place for him to go. And uh, one day he said something very poignant to me. I talked about own, that he owned a lot of instruments. And he said, no one owns instruments. They're just visitors because they're going to go on to someone else. Stringed instrument collection. You began at the third fall. You were alone, and soon they surrounded you. Mandolins, mandolas, guitars, cutaways, dreadnoughts, the upright bass. You spent most of those nights with the jazz guitar, learning Birdland and Twilight Time. The others hung from inlaid necks, scrolled heads, patient, mute, the way they hang now from these walls. You claim no wood is ever dead, even if it's gone to fire and risen as heat, and think of them not as possessions, but as guests who will survive you, pass to other hands the way they passed to yours. Sometimes a name called out, a cough, a laugh will echo here, our voices in the hollows of their bodies, for now sustained. I think I'll read one more. I think probably, and then you, if you want, have questions, you can ask me. But you all have been uh, very, very patient. This one ends the whole book. Um, I had a lot of fun writing the poem, but we, as I told you, we like to ride our bicycles down to the river. And back when the river had a dam, before the Rappahannock was set free, we would go down and hang around the dam. And one day we were down there, and some young guys had caught a painted turtle, and they were torturing it, which I don't like. So 
as I tell the same joke every time, I so pardon me, those of you who have heard it before, but I always say the feminist that I am, I got Kent to go over and try to buy the turtle from the <laughs> evil young men. So 20 bucks later, we had bought a painted turtle so that we could let it go free. Um, so that this one closes the, the whole thing. It's a, it's a variation on sonnet, so it's a little bit longer. Buying the painted turtle. Two boys, not quite men, pretended to let it go, only to catch it again and again. And the turtle, equally determined, each time gave its heart to escape them. We were near the base of the old dam, where the river became a translucent, hissing wall, fixed in falling, where, by the size of it, the turtle had long trusted its defense, the streaming algae, green, black, red, the garden of its spine, not to fail it. They held it upside down, the yellow plastron exposed. They hoisted it over their heads like a trophy. I left it to you to do the bargaining, exchange the money for us to save it and let it go. Fast it disappeared into deeper water, returning to another present, where the boulders cut the current to cast safer shadows of motionlessness. We were already forgotten then, like most gods, after floods recede, after fevers break. We did not talk about what we had bought. An hour, an afternoon, a later death, worth whatever we had to give for it. Thank you all so much for coming out. Really.